0: Well, welcome to First Move. Another jam-packed show coming up for you today, including D-Day for Powell and the team at the Fed. A planned trip to Taiwan has China seeing red. Inflation dread for global consumers continues to spread, and as for price hikes, corporations increasingly embed. For now, though, stock futures on Wall Street plowing ahead. Europe higher too, but expect some volatility as we approach that Fed decision time. We're less than five hours away now, as we speak. A sizable three quarters a percentage point rate hike is already baked into markets. Investors, though, will be laser focused on what the Fed Chair Powell has to say about future moves. Could he go a mere half a point, and I say that carefully, in September if inflation moderates? We'll be discussing all the details and the outlook in a moment. In the meantime, corporate earnings from both the United States and Europe showing profits holding up, I think we can say, overall, even as rate hikes begin slowing economies. Food giant Kraft Heinz today even raising It's 2022 sales outlook. That said, a lot of the challenges we talk about constantly on this show are far from resolved. Boeing's results missing estimates today amid ongoing supply chain woes. The ad sales slowdown impacting Alphabet, that's the Google parent, and the dollar strength, dinging Microsoft, corporations grappling with how much inflation to pass on to consumers too. Just take a listen to what Coca-Cola, McDonald's and Unilever said. They're all seeing sales hold up even as they raise prices. But as Walmart warned yesterday, the urge to splurge on non-essentials is simply no longer there. The popular Mexican food chain Chipotle now saying it will cost more dough for its tacos. Chipotle, though, hoping diners won't say holy guacamole, we'll discuss with the firm's CFO later in the programme. For now, it's hang on to your burrito. The Fed is far from finito. And that's where we begin today's show. Rahel Solomon joins me now. No food references required, Rahel. Great to have you on the show. (laughs) Um, I think three quarters of a percentage point rate hike is expected, which takes us to a level that we often talk about. Neutral, no longer supporting growth, Mm -hmm. no longer withdrawing from growth. The question is, I think, what next for the Fed?
1: Absolutely. Short of any surprises uh, in today's meeting, the the guidance and sort of all eyes turn to, well, what could happen in September? Uh, 75 basis points and three quarters of a percent, even though we saw that in the last meeting, Julia, that is still significant. I mean, the last time before June we saw a rate hike of that magnitude was 1994. And now we're starting to see a growing consensus that we could possibly see another three quarters of a percent in September. City Research putting out a note a short time ago this morning saying that, look, With headline inflation at 9.1 percent and core measures above 4 percent, a Fed that has committed to bringing down inflation, I think we have the quote here that we can pull up, is unlikely to pivot to a more dovish strategy. We continue to expect further aggressive hikes, including 75 basis points or three quarters of a percent in September. Julia, I don't know that we have ever seen consecutive increases uh, meeting after meeting of three quarters of a percent. Again, the last time we saw that was 1994. So it really just goes to show you uh, how aggressive the Federal Reserve feels like it has to be. The question, however, is how much is too much. We can argue that there is likely some consensus right now that the Fed has to do more because inflation uh, has clearly shown signs of accelerating. But at what point does it become too much? And the fear of a recession uh, grows and accelerates. So that's the big question now. And we're going to be sort of listening very closely to Powell's comments in terms of messaging and, and sort of sentiment and how they're feeling about some of the data we've seen. But it's a really big question and a question that a lot of people are probably asking now.
0: These big jumps are what being late looks like, deliberate or otherwise, and that's a fact. Um, You're right, and I couldn't agree more with you on some of the big questions that we're asking. I think some of the others are, what level of inflation is the Fed going to say, Okay, prices are now under control? And what level of interest rates, given all the rises that we're talking about now, creates that level where they go, okay, we're comfortable. And while all the Fed members are holding together now and recognizing they have to take action, uh, the views are going to start changing very quickly, to your point, about what's enough and what level of inflation are we happy with? And um, That's a real hot potato in terms of questions, and I shall throw it in your direction,
2: Rahel.
1: <laughs> and if only I knew the answer. And the truth is perhaps that no one knows the answer mm. right now, right? I mean, this is why we hear from Powell that they will be data dependent. But Julie, it's a great point because we're already starting to see prices fall, and certainly in terms of raw materials, in terms of uh, commodities like soybeans, grain, corn, certainly crude. And so if, if we're already starting to see prices fall off. We're already starting to see uh, inflation appear to peak, at least. At what point will enough be enough? And I would argue, just based on Powell's comments before, that they're probably not going to take their foot off the brake until they see a deceleration in monthly inflation, month over month, core inflation. Until we start to see that come down, which we haven't yet, I don't think they're going to feel like this is moving in the right direction. And of course, also, Julia, there is a concern that the Fed may take their foot off the brake too soon, that if, once we just start to get indications of peaking, that it might sort of pull back. And then we're sort of in a yo-yo. So, uh, so many questions. No one really knows the answer. And that's what's unfortunate right now, that we're all sort of taking a wait and see approach. But I should say between now and the September meeting, we're going to get two jobs reports, which are going to be very important for the Fed. We're going to get some very key inflation reports including one on Friday. So we'll be looking very closely at that month-over-month month core inflation. But the question is, how much will be enough? And we won't know. We won't know, yeah. right? Because monetary policy, of course, there's a, a lag there. So uh, it is not an exact science, unfortunately.
0: No, it's definitely imperfect. And uh, we're both envious, or not envious, of Jay Powell having to um, be the person who has to, to front that campaign and, and try and explain the, uh, quite frankly, inexplicable most of the time. Ralph. Well, Thank you for that. Okay, Natural gas prices have hit their highest level since 2008, just complicating some of the challenges. This after Russian gas giant Gazprom said it would further reduce supply through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, it's eye-watering. Gas prices have jumped, what, a further 30% over the last two days. I think everyone was expecting Russia to play hardball or to continue to play hardball over energy and specifically gas prices. But I don't think anybody expected supply capacity cuts down to what 20% just days after Nord Stream 1 was reopened.
3: Yeah, did I think what you had there was Russia essentially engineering an emotional roller coaster for the gas market. Mm. Uh, a relief, a feeling of relief when the Nord Stream 1 came back online at the end of that scheduled maintenance period and then just 3 days later cutting in half the amount of supply or announcing it was going to cut in half the amount of supply coming ...through that pipeline. This is why we see gas prices soaring so much in the last few days. And the interesting thing, which uh, analysts at Reistat Energy have pointed out, if you look exactly at that chart, you see that it's coming back close to the highs that we saw in the early days of the Russia-Ukraine war in March. But back then... The highs were, were, were sort of on the back of sentiment, fear that there would be a supply crunch. When we when we saw that Europe wasn't going to immediately move in and sanction energy, that fear receded and the prices came back down. Now what we have due is a real supply crunch, real limits on supply into Europe, and couple that with sentiment as well that this could get worse. And this is very serious, and I think really what the European plan to cut demand by 15% lays bare. It is the truth that we've known all along, which is that there is no way to fully replace Russian gas deliveries into Europe with gas from other sources. They always had to cut demand. Now they're having to do it even quicker than expected.
0: I think that's an incredibly valid point at the perfectly appropriate moment. Claire. We know that there's an affordability crisis for consumers. I'm sure these prices were beyond the limits of affordability for many industrial users, too. And I think to your point about what was a watered down plan from the Europeans to at times voluntarily cut capacity. And of course, with caveats on certain countries, the credibility is not there. It's not enough.
3: I mean, look, for the EU, the important thing was to try at least to put on a show of unity, uh, to show that they're resolved to, to continue to support Ukraine, even if it means enduring economic. Pain themselves remains, but it is watered down. Uh, Hungary has voted against it. They told us uh, they said the plan was completely unacceptable. Then we have exemptions, which, according to the think tank here in Europe, Bruegel, uh, affect about six countries. The derogations, as they're called, where countries can then uh, apply for, for for lower targets when it comes to uh, demand reduction. That could affect, according to Bruegel, another 12 countries. So there you have two thirds uh, of the EU that could either be exempt or have lower targets. Should we move? from the voluntary 15% into mandatory cuts if we get into a gas emergency. But look, it, it really was supposed to be a show of unity. I think the jury's still out on whether they actually achieved that.
0: Yeah, and if you get to those forced capacity cuts, um, we'll take another look at that unity. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Lufthansa cancelling over 1,000 flights as its ground staff go on strike. The airline says 130,000 passengers will be impacted by the walkout. Anna Stewart joins me now. Just the latest, I think, in uh, the challenges and battles for for Lufthansa. What do the unions want, Anna? And talk us through these capacity limitations, because when we're talking about 130,000 people, that's a lot of angry customers.
2: Yeah. And we've covered so many Mm. strikes from airports and airlines in recent weeks. This one is absolutely huge when you consider 130,000 passengers. Now, at the heart of this strike, like many others, it's a demand for a wage increase from uh, ground staff at Lufthansa. This is led by the Verdi Trade Union. And they want to see a wage increase of nine and a half percent for some 20,000 ground staff. And they want that over a 12 month period. My rough calculation, that brings the cost, if that was to be agreed, to $88 million for Lufthansa over a 12-month period. Now, Lufthansa have offered a wage increase, but it's nowhere near what this trade union would like. They've already had two rounds of negotiations and it's not going anywhere. For those people, those 130,000 people that are impacted by this strike today, it's really tricky to know what's going to happen in terms of their onward travel, because ordinarily the airline would just rebook you onto another flight. But we know already the capacity issues for airlines, for airports all around the world, but particularly, of course, uh, in Europe. So how many of those people will actually get rebooked onto a flight today or tomorrow is anyone's guess, frankly. And speaking to some passengers on social media and also listening to a few uh, from Reuters this morning, I think it's really hard for people to get information. Lufthansa staff, of course, really stretched to respond to 130,000 people. Take a listen to this passenger who is uh, stranded in Frankfurt.
3: The problem, no, I cannot travel. I arrived from Africa now. Uh, I have to go to Paris, the flight was cancelled, and they said, tomorrow you will be rebooked. But uh, nobody was here when we arrived in order to say what do we have to do, where do we have to go, where do we have to sleep. And so we are looking for some Lufthansa people that can help us, but when we ask, it, it will be very hard to find someone from Lufthansa today in the airport, so we don't know what to do.
2: And I think the biggest problem for many people is actually a lack of information because it is so hard to speak to 130,000 people all with obviously quite unique situations and people want to know will they get compensation, will they be refunded if they have to book into a hotel, if they need food, drink, transport, Uh, when will the next flight be that they can get on and of course so many people stranded at home. So at the moment a big problem here is information and for Lufthansa the third round of wage negotiations with this union takes place next week. If that doesn't bear fruit then of course we could be... looking at another day like this before the summer ends julia
0: yeah it's difficult isn't it to uh, negotiate and try and get help when people are striking that's why there's no one around to help um Mm -hmm. i was going to ask you any resolution in sight but what we're saying is it's we've got another week till the negotiations take place and then the the, the risk is that there's more of this
2: yeah and will all those passengers who are stuck today (laughs) even be on their way home by the time the next negotiation round comes next week who knows julia
0: yeah we'll keep in touch anna thank you for that anna stewart there Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Joe Biden is expected to speak with China's president this week as concerns grow about a potential visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Sources say Pelosi wants to go there in the coming weeks, but administration officials are expressing concerns about how China will respond. Selina Wang has more on why such a visit will be so contentious at this moment. Fire
4: and fury from Beijing in response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's potential visit to Taiwan. China threatening to take resolute and powerful measures. A U.S. official told CNN China could impose a no-fly zone around Taiwan. A prominent hawkish voice in China said Beijing's reaction would involve a shocking military response, even suggesting that PLA military aircraft will accompany Pelosi's plane to enter the island, making a historic crossing of the island by military aircraft from the mainland. But the Chinese government hasn't announced details about how it could retaliate.
5: Beijing believes that this uncertainty will lead to deterrence and that Washington and Taipei will effectively talk themselves out of this. But I don't think Beijing really wants to risk a military conflict.
4: China sees the self-ruled island as a breakaway province that must be reunified with the mainland, even by force if necessary. There have been recent U.S. congressional visits, but if Pelosi goes to Taiwan, she would be the highest-ranking U.S. official to travel there since then-House Speaker Newt Gingrich in 1997. This potential visit comes at an extremely sensitive time. China's military is celebrating its founding anniversary on August 1st, and we're just months away from a key political meeting when Xi Jinping is expected to seek an unprecedented third term. From Beijing's perspective, a potential visit by Pelosi to Taiwan would be a reckless act that provokes Beijing at a time it's supposed to be projecting strength, control and stability.
5: I think military action on China's part in response to a Pelosi visit is is very risky for Xi Jinping.
4: Officially, Washington and most governments around the world only acknowledge Beijing as the legal government of China, Yet unofficial ties between Washington and Taipei have been growing closer, and the U.S. continues to sell weapons to the island. All of that infuriates China. In response, last year Beijing flew a record number of warplanes into airspace near Taiwan. For decades, the U.S. has been purposefully vague about whether it would defend the island should the Chinese invade. That's a
2: commitment we made.
4: Biden has said several times that the U.S. would intervene militarily if China were to attack Taiwan.
3: Yes, we have a commitment to do that.
4: Only to have the White House walk back those remarks each time. But as China's military might grows, more are calling for the Biden administration to end this so-called strategic ambiguity. It's impossible to overstate how important Taiwan is to the Communist Party and its legitimacy. Beijing is against any move that appears to acknowledge Taiwan as an independent country or makes the U.S. relationship more formal. And a visit from one of America's most powerful politicians does just that. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing.
0: People in the Philippines are bracing for more tremors after a seven-magnitude earthquake struck the north of the country early Wednesday. At least four people died and dozens were injured. The quake caused landslides and knocked out power in some places and was felt more than four hundred kilometers away in the capital Manila. The U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner says her rights were not read to her when she was detained at a Moscow airport in February. Griner was back in Russian court testifying in her trial on charges of drug smuggling. She pleaded guilty earlier this month to taking cannabis oil into the country. Her lawyers argue it was prescribed for severe pain. Though if convicted, Griner faces up to 10 years in prison. Okay, still ahead here on first move, where burritos meet Bitcoin, fast giant Chipotle leveraging crypto to attract new customers, plus electrifying deliveries. Exciting new EV vans from GM's Brightrop. We have the CEO coming up. Welcome back to First Move. The popular Mexican food chain Chipotle stock jumping pre-market following its second quarter earnings. It was able to raise prices in recent months to offset soaring costs, though says prices will go up again next month. Meanwhile, it's giving away $200,000 in crypto with a promotion called Buy the Dip. Chipotle stores now accepting cryptocurrencies, including like Bitcoin, Ether and Dogecoin. Joining us now is the CFO of Chipotle Mexican Grill, Jack Hartung. Jack, fantastic to have you on the show. Investors clearly impressed with these earnings at incredibly challenging times and to some degree, a bit of sales softening offset by your ability to raise prices. These are challenging times.
6: Yeah, they, they certainly are, Julia. And, you know, what I'm really proud of is during these challenging times, I mean, we really focus on the basics, meaning focus on uh, providing a great experience to our customers, uh, focus on culinary. Our customers come in and expect to see real cooking. They expect to do, uh, taste delicious food made from real ingredients. And that's what we focus on more than anything. The inflation environment really, really tough. Everyone out there, every industry is is facing this. One of the advantage, advantages we have is we have pricing power. We We don't love to be in a hurry to use it. But when the inflation keeps coming at us, we will take modest increases just to try to offset some of that inflation.
0: I mean, I saw it uh, compared to where you were back in 2020, sort of on average, a 10 percent price rise. And there's more coming in August. How many more times can you do this, to your point about the ability to to change prices and, and pass that on?
6: Well, we still do have room, Julia, because we compare ourselves to other restaurants. Remember, other other, right. other restaurants are raising prices as well. Grocery stores are raising prices. So really, the consumer, any way they turn, there's really going to be inflation. It's just the reality of when ingredients go up, the prices are going to go up as well. So we have pricing power. We'd love it if inflation would ease and level off here. We'd love it to not have to take another price increase. But when you compare what we offer in terms of the quality, in terms of the customization, in terms of the experience you get at Chipotle compared to anything comparable, we're still priced quite a bit under what other competitors are are pricing at right now.
0: So it's the relative pricing power that we have to remember in two, and that's vitally important. Is it getting easier, Jack, very quickly? Is there any sense that it's leveling off or is your assumption here, look, these price pressures could be around at least for for the next quarter, perhaps a, a couple more?
6: Yeah, we see additional inflation, additional pressure from a few items in the third quarter in terms of dairy, in terms of beef, in terms of packaging. We're still seeing pockets of, of wage inflation. We took a very big move uh, a little over a year ago where we raised all of our wages, uh, you know, 15% or more. Our average hourly wage, uh, wage for uh, our employees is in the 15 to $16 range. Um, but we still see pockets of inflation throughout the country. So we don't see it easing right now. I do think as consumers respond, and we did see a softening like other businesses during the second quarter, I do think as consumers pull back, there will be some rebalancing of the supply and demand out of balance that we're seeing, because that's frankly the biggest cause of the inflation. And, and we're hoping that will level off by, let's say, Q4 or maybe early next year.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's still a long time to go. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, wage pressures Obviously, you, you did raise wages to, on average, them a $15 minimum wage. And we're one of the first to do that, let's be clear. Um, but you did recently call, close a store in Maine. And it was due to staff shortages, according to the company. Though we have to raise the point that these, these workers were talking about unionizing. And I know the company said, look, these are, these are two issues that are not, not related in any way. Jack, what, what is the Chipotle's view on unionising? Because sometimes that can be helpful in that it creates a united voice, a negotiating voice, rather than trying to negotiate with lots of people. Do you welcome some form of unionisation or is it unwelcome at Chipotle?
6: Julia, we fully support our employees' rights to unionise. And in Augusta, we support their rights as well. The reality, unfortunately, we don't like closing restaurants. We hate to take away the Chipotle opportunity away from customers in that marketplace we couldn't staff the restaurant. In fact, we had two full-time recruiters go to that area to try to um, hire enough staff. We we, ha- we had to close the restaurant because frankly, we didn't have enough staff to safely, uh, you know, prepare, cook, and and serve our food. So we had to close the restaurant. We invited our existing crew to come in uh, to go through some retraining. We were paying them during that period. We were actively recruiting for a matter of a couple of months. We just couldn't get enough crew, and so we had no choice at some point, um, you know, that we had to close the restaurant. One of the other things I'd I'd like to add is, you know, we've chosen to be a company-owned business. Most restaurant companies rely on heavy franchising, meaning somebody else owns the business, somebody else hires the employee. We have 100,000 employees, so we value our employees. We know our future is based on hiring great people today that will be our future leaders of tomorrow. So we really spend a lot of time making sure that our employee proposition is uh, a favorable one, that people that join Chipotle, they may come in for a job that pays 15 or 16 bucks an hour, But they have the ability within a matter of of a few years to move up into management roles. We'll teach um, crew that come in today how to cook, how to lead people, how to run a business. Um, We promoted 19,000 people last year. That's more than six people in every single restaurant. So when you join Chipotle, you can't help but look around you and see people being promoted all around you. And so, you know, it just speaks to the idea that there's opportunity when you come. So our main focus is to make sure we provide a compelling employee proposition so people love to join Chipotle And when they join, they feel like that. We value them and they've got a future with us.
0: Jack, I appreciate your honesty on this. Um, We have to talk about the Venture Fund too, because it does tie to what we're saying about some of the broader labor challenges that you mentioned. When I look at some of the investments that the Venture Fund is making in it, it is tied to uh, productivity and efficiency for for the existing workers that you have. Chippy, um, I was looking at this online, the autonomous kitchen assistant. Um, Do you think in the end you'll end up perhaps if, if these kind of technologies are installed more broadly across across uh, your chains, that actually you will need less workers because the ones that you do have will be more efficient due to the kind of autonomous technology that you're investing in. Is that where you're sort of headed?
6: Yeah, I don't think we'll need less employees, Julia, but I think we'll allow our employees to do other tasks. For example, mm-hmm. frying chips, um, you know, it results in in delicious chips. We make our, 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 our chips from... Scratch every single day. And so, um, you know, they're delicious. We don't want to give up on that, but it's a hard job. It's very, very hot to stand over that fryer for hours and make the chips. So it's a job that our employees don't love doing. So if we can bring automation um, that will make the employee experience a better experience, they can focus on other tasks like doing some other culinary tasks, serving customers, things like that. So I think it's a win win, not just for the quality of our, our, our culinary and the restaurant, but also the quality of the experience that our employees will have. So I don't see us going down in terms of the number of employees, but I do think we can redeploy them into other tasks.
0: You got it. Buy the dip. Jack, we have to talk about the cryptocurrency offerings. I've seen all sorts of feedback on this, some excitement, some criticism that you shouldn't be telling people to buy the dip. I know you're not, but you can come back on that. Um, Ultimately, what is this about and and what percentage of people buying food do you see in the future paying in crypto even today?
6: Yeah, listen, this. Yeah, Julia, it's it's about having fun, to be honest. I mean, listen, <laughs> crypto, we're not, we're not encouraging people. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, but listen, I, you know, a lot of people are investing in crypto. A lot of people are right. talking about crypto. It's it's part of culture, whether you're pro-crypto or against crypto. People have opinions about it. Our, listen, we just thought it'd be a fun thing to do. Obviously, buy the dip, it, you know, has a has a double meaning because we're talking about our guacamole and our queso. And so it's just a matter of having fun. We do accept crypto, um, you know, through a partner called Flexa. Uh, to be honest, I don't, I don't know if any customers actually come in and pay for crypto. But again, we just thought it would be a fun thing. We have a lot of young customers. A lot of our young customers are very interested in crypto. Some are invested in it. And so we thought this would be a fun way to, uh, you know, tap into, uh, you know, a topic that a, a lot of our customers are, are having fun with nowadays.
0: Yes. And look, we're talking about it. Jack, are you a crypto? Are you a crypto fan?
6: <laughs> I am not. People have asked us if uh, you know. some are worried about it. they will say, well, you know, we've got over a billion dollars on our balance sheet and they ask us, will we ever invest of in course. crypto? And some want the answer to be yes. Most want the answer to be no. The answer is no. Uh, crypto is not part of our business strategy today. Um, we're going to focus on really the best investment we can make is into our restaurants and into our people. And, you know, crypto, while there certainly is going to be some future, uh, you know, with crypto, with other businesses Right, right now, that's not our focus.
0: So if I offer you. Burrito or Bitcoin, you take the burrito.
6: If I'm hungry, it's the burrito.
2: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's a clarification there. But you should have said it only fits Chipotle's. Anyway, Jack, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time and we'll speak again soon. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Jack Harting there, the CFO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. OK, up next, a bright spark in the race to net zero. We're joined by the CEO of GM's Bright Drop on their work to decarbonize last mile logistics. Welcome back to First Move and a high start to the Wall Street trading day. Stocks bouncing from Tuesday's weakness sparked by Walmart's warning, if you remember, on the health of the U.S. consumer. Well, a hot few days for investors up ahead with important earnings and economic data on tap. Perhaps some cooling refreshment is needed for the heads of business and finance. The first move ice cream shop proposes a few scoops of rum raisin for Fed chair Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve. The U.S. central bank raising rates later today. Investors hope Powell will go two scoops in September, though, instead of three a cone of rocky road for U.S. economists and negative print is a very real possibility when we get preliminary looks at the second quarter GDP reading tomorrow. The White House already bracing for a bad number, stressing that two quarters of negative growth do not an official recession make. And finally, cookie dough for the big tech firms as earnings season reaches its peak meta earnings on tap later today. Amazon and Apple, of course, are out tomorrow. Shares of the one and only Mr Softy Microsoft higher in early trade too. Alphabet also rising as you can see both firms missing in fact on profit and revenues in their latest earnings but both are assuring investors that their underlying businesses remain strong with Microsoft even going as far as raising guidance. Now, GM's EV unit, BrightDrop is truly racing to electrify last mile logistics. The jewel in the crown is its electric van, the Zivo 600. FedEx already has 150 of them in its fleet. The truck has already set a record too the quickest ever development of a vehicle by GM or under the GM umbrella taking just 20 months. 20 from conception to market. The Zivos range is also record-breaking for an electric van. FedEx and Walmart have both placed big orders. And joining us now to discuss, Travis Katz, president and CEO of Bright Drop. Travis, fantastic to have you with us. Not only have you delivered, but I believe you've got a pending deals and orders for up to 25,000 more. Um, Tell us where you are and how pivotal this moment is, because I do think the speed to which you've got this truck on the road and delivered is pretty astonishing.
5: Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. And thank you for having me, Julia. So so this is a really exciting moment uh, for us. So our mission at BrightDrop is really to decarbonize and really reimagine last mile delivery for an all electric future. And uh, the timing couldn't be more critical. On the one hand, you've got, you know, this explosion in package growth as we all start to shift our buying behavior from shopping in stores to online. And Companies are really struggling to keep up with that. But at the same time, you've got climate change, and there's a lot of uh, urgency to really figure out how do we keep up with that growth while reducing carbon emissions. Um, so at Bright Drop, we've been really focused on this, and 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 we're really delivering for customers today. And, and like you mentioned, we've already got more than 25,000 reservations for these uh, we finished our first deliveries uh, of low-volume production to FedEx, these first 150 to FedEx uh, in June. Um, that's now the largest uh, installation of electric vehicles, commercial electric vehicles in the country, and we are getting ready to ramp up. We're launching our high-volume production uh, at, our, at our factory in, in uh, Canada um, in December of this year. So we're really hitting the ground running, and we're, we're gearing up for explosive growth.
0: It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, there's so many questions I can ask you there, but one of the other elements that we're we're facing is the supply chain challenges, in particular the chip shortages. The beauty, I think, of the business that you have as a spin-off from GM is that I guess you're cushioned by their supply chain and that you can draw on them when you require them. But even they in their latest earnings said that semiconductor shortage remains a challenge. To what extent in terms of the ramp up of the production is reliant on your ability to get component pieces like semiconductors? Is that going to be a limitation?
5: Yeah, so so uh, the way we've set Bright drop up is a little bit unique, where we set it up as a separate tech startup under the GM umbrella, which allows us to really both move at the speed and with the urgency of a tech startup, but really leverage the strengths that GM brings to bear and strengths around supply chain and manufacturing. So the way that we were able to get these first vehicles on the road so quickly, I think faster than anyone's ever delivered a vehicle from conception, uh, was by leveraging the strengths that GM brings to the table. Supply chain, as you know, is has been a big challenge for everyone in the industry and, and uh, GM is not immune to that. In our last earnings, we talked about, uh, being short a bit on our deliveries because we were missing some semiconductors to finish some vehicles. That said, uh, GM is still one of the best companies in supply chain in the world. And uh, we also announced that we've secured uh, battery minerals to deliver up our ambition of a million electric vehicles per year by 2025. When you think about some of the startups who've entered this space, and there was a lot of buzz around these startups uh, and a lot of SPAC, IPOs and those things, if you're starting from the ground up trying to figure out how do you manage through these supply chain disruptions, how do you scale manufacturing, it's a really, really hard problem. So our setup at, at Brightrop with General Motors backing really allows us to move forward uh, with confidence and, and feel confident that we can deliver for our customers. And I think the proof is in the pudding that we are delivering today. So we have trucks on the ground today delivering packages in the Los Angeles area, and that number is just going to continue to grow.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a cash burn business. But to your point as well, there simply aren't enough resources to go around for everybody that's, that's on the market. I mean, Stellantis, Ford, Rivian, all in the same game of producing EV and in your case, pure EV. Um, what is the cost of one of these trucks? And I know you're going to produce a smaller one next year as well. But, but what is the cost? And what are customers saying to you? And what's your message about the relative cost savings, particularly at a time when We know fossil fuel prices have have soared. What is the relative cost saving of driving one of these for for a FedEx or a Walmart?
5: Yeah, it's a very important question, Julia. The the reality is that while everyone's sort of hand-wringing about the state of the economy right now and inflation is, is sort of the story of the day, one of the exciting things about this moment for electric vehicles in particular is, is we've crossed the threshold where it is now cheaper to own and operate an electric vehicle than it is to operate a, da- uh, a diesel vehicle. We ran these numbers uh, you know, two years ago. We found that the average customer was going to save about $7,000 per vehicle per year when they switched from a traditional diesel step van to a bright drop electric van. That was when gas prices were about $2.25 per gallon obviously the savings are much higher now. And as uh, with the war in Ukraine and the spike in gas prices, I think companies are really looking, even though they are looking at ways to cut back in different parts of their business uh, in the face of economic uncertainty, this is one area where they will save money by investing in electric vehicles. And so we are hearing customers wanting to dig in even more aggressively to move to an all electric future and to get off uh, these very expensive diesel uh, vehicles.
0: Yeah, big upfront cost. But then, as you say, the the relative benefits over the course of several years um, are key. It's not just about EV vehicles for you, though. There's also a push into software and and providing greater efficiency of of logistics for some of these companies. Because as you keep saying, it's the last mile delivery that we're we're talking about. You also have a platform called Trace that helps as well with delivery. Travis, how important a part of the business is this going to be as well, that the software part of the business in particular?
5: Yeah, it's huge. Thanks for asking. So, so one of the things that sets Bright Drop apart from the competition is we're not just building electric vans, although I think we've got one of the best vans on the market. We're really building a whole suite of products. These include electrically propelled carts, the Trace, uh, as well as software to really help holistically think about last mile delivery. So um, if you think about what's happening as e-commerce is growing, you know, people have just started packing more and more trucks uh, into our cities to make deliveries. And and consumer expectations are continuing to grow. So we want our vehicles, our packages delivered faster and faster, but the infrastructure in cities is fixed. So streets aren't getting bigger. And so what you're starting to see is traffic congestion, uh, package delays, and, and companies are really struggling to figure out and cities are struggling to figure out how do we let people have the convenience they want from e-commerce uh, without the negative externalities of more traffic. Um, we've brought these solutions together. So the Trace e is an electrically propelled cart. It's meant to move, Uh, packages over short distances, say from a truck to the front door, we piloted this with FedEx last year and they were able to see a 25% increase uh, in the amount of packages they could deliver per day without increasing labor costs. So that's massive. Um, In addition, they were able to reduce their curbside dwell time. So how long trucks are sitting at the curb by 50%. So when you think about traffic flows and how do you make sure we keep traffic flowing in our cities, it's a game changer. Um, and then, of course, all of this, I'm a software entrepreneur by background, and cool. everything that we're doing, all of our products, our vans, our e-carts, are all connected to Internet of Things devices. Yep. I,
0: I'm, I'm out of time. I'm going to have to get you back on because I have oh, all okay. sorts of uh, further questions, as always. Thank you so much. That's my fault for asking three Thank questions. Thank you, It's
5: wonderful to be here. Thank Likewise, you.
0: Likewise. We'll continue the conversation, sir. Thank you, Travis Katz, the president Sounds and good. CEO of Bright Drop. Thank you for that. And that was from uh, last mile to last second of the show and beyond. That's it. Marketplace Europe up next. We'll see you tomorrow.